Hello, America in various parts of the world, and in the words of Connell Cochran, Happy Halloween. It's the Slumgullion, America's only podcast. I am Jeff. Three hours behind me is Scott. Happy Halloween, Scott. <laughs> Very nice Halloween cackle, by the way. <laughs> Very seasonally a- appropriate. I I have my moments. That's right, folks. It is a Halloween special. We have a fun and even for us unique uh, unknown movie challenge this episode. I would say that's that is this one's different for us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, this one is definitely different for us. And um, oh, and in case you were wondering, uh, Mrs. C will be back next episode as we continue with New Who. But since this is Halloween, we want to do something a little bit special. Like I said, we've got the UMC coming up. But first, in part one. I have been chomping at the bit to talk about this. I have been quiet on Twitter. I've said a few things, but not much. And Scott, I didn't even know you saw this, so I'm kind of happy that we can actually talk about this. We are talking Halloween, the movie, not the holiday, and not the original or zombies, the the new one, the uh, good one. Well, so, I think it's one. So, so we're talking Halloween with a lot of qualifiers. <laughs> this is like Halloween 12, if you want to be really obnoxious. Maybe this, is, I don't know. this is Halloween multiple asterisks. This is Halloween 2 squared. There you go. Or no, it's Halloween 2 cubed, since, since there's already been a Halloween 2 and then zombie at Halloween 2. So this is Halloween 2 cubed. Oh, see, I didn't get this far in math. This is I, <laughs> Nobody told me there would be math involved in this review, so I'm... <laughs> But for those of you who are living under a rock, um, Jamie Lee Curtis has returned. It was written by guys who are predominantly into comedy and all of the other films from two through resurrection. Thank God. Resurrection have been wiped clean. It's a clean slate. This is a direct sequel to the original. And before we go any farther, I just want to get on my soapbox and say, I have no fucking problem with that because I kind of hate all the other Halloween films. I am very happy with this precedent because the film in one fell swoop wipes out 40 years of continuity and then just picks up where it left off. And frankly, there's a fairly large swath between, say, age 11, 12 and my 30s uh, where I made some bad decisions. And uh, I would kind of like to take a big eraser and uh, wipe this late clean. So uh, I hope this idea catches on. As people go, you know, you did a bunch of stuff, but nope, sorry. I refer you to the Supreme Court Halloween precedent, which uh, permits me to say, nah, 40 years of films they just forgot about. I don't know why I can't do that with my life. <laughs> well, you can. It just takes a hell of a lot of drugs. I've got those. <laughs> more. I think you're going to need more than what you normally Prob- have. Probably, yeah. <laughs> Let me check the message. No, I can't bend the temporal zone yet. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, like I said, I know I know a lot of people have a soft spot for Halloween too. But I'm going to say it right off the bat. Even when I saw the film when I was 12, I thought making Laurie Strode Michael's sister was fucking stupid. It, and, it was because and, he already killed his sister. What the? You don't get two bites at that apple. And indeed, and I have to say this, people joke about it, but I'm sorry, the, the five people working at the hospital totally threw me out of the movie. I hated that. Even as a kid, I thought that was stupid. 
So Halloween 2 never did anything for me. And for those of you who don't know, John Carpenter himself, who wrote the screenplay, hates it. He never wanted to make it. He thought it was one and done. He wanted Halloween 2 to be an anth- to be the first film in the anthology because all he wanted Michael to be was the boogeyman. That's what the character was supposed to be. And then even in Halloween 2, he killed off Michael Myers. That Remember the big explosion? Everybody died except Laurie. And then, of course, Halloween 3, which is a good film, but it failed because everybody wanted Michael Myers back. Fuck all you people. So then we got Halloween 4 which was unfortunately came out right in the era of slasher film. So it was basically a normal slasher film with a great ending. Had they ended, had they not ended, had they not continued and just ended with Halloween four, I kind of would have been happy because that final shot of Jamie holding the knife and Dr. Loomis going, no, no, realizing that his, that his whole life had been an immortal failure at this point because the evil had been passed on. That was a great fucking ending. And then we got Halloween five and six and the less said about those, the better. If you're a fan of the cult of thorns, good for you. I'm not. Don't judge me. So anyway, I don't like slasher films to begin with, and slasher films as a whole, I find the whole genre kind of crappy. I think the reason that Halloween, the original, works so well is, A, well, technically it's great, it has a phenomenal score, and B, it gives you characters that you care about. Now, that being said, let's jump into the new one. Scott, I didn't even know you saw it until a little bit ago today. What did you think of the new one? And I know you're not a fan, so I'm very interested in your take. I, I... Pretty sure we're going to disagree about this. Okay. All right. Let me just come out of the gate, be brutally honest about how I feel. I think it's a tedious, tiresome rehash of slasher movie cliches that struggles and barely manages to achieve mediocrity. I think the script is paint by numbers. The jokes, astonishingly, consider considering who wrote the script, fall utterly flat for me. The characters are boring when they're not annoying. And the last 15 minutes, to me, feels less like Halloween and more like the Golden Girls meets Straw Dogs. Wow. I will say up front that possibly one reason I did not have anywhere near the same experience that you and other fans did. And this is something I realized while I was watching the new one. I haven't seen the original Halloween all the way through since I caught it at the Dollar Theater in Costa Mesa in 1979. I seem to remember it was around Thanksgiving and it was on the bottom half of a double bill with Phantasm. Uh, Oh, okay. All right. And I liked Halloween. I liked Halloween better, even though that's, that's probably the only time I've really enjoyed a slasher movie. It's like, oh, that's, if you're going to see one, see that one. And then if it's not your genre, you're you're good. There there aren't a lot more that you really need to catch, but there you go. That's my feeling. And how did you Wow. Feel? Well I'm 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 I am sorry of enthusiasm because I know you weren't gonna see it. I'm sorry that my my over enthusiasm forced you to sit through that. No, okay. Let me clarify. I, I don't want to give you or anyone else the, the the wrong impression about how I feel about it. Let me just say that I don't take any pleasure in criticizing this movie, which should tell you something. I mean, you especially, you you know how I am with bad movies. They yes. turn me into a parfait of conflicting emotions, alternating bands of listless despair, spitting rage, and giggling delight. Uh, Indeed. That's, yeah, that's the fuel that drives my writing on the subject at World of Crap and in the Better Living Through Bad Movies books. Let me just tell you that it, 
that if I were considering this for the for the next book, this film would not make that cut. It it was more of a mild disappointment than a gangrenous separating wound. Okay. Now, I, I, real I, don't, fast, I didn't come out of it. I'm not I'm not filled with hate. Understood. I didn't think you were. No, I didn't think you were. But I'm um, coming at from an opposite, uh, from a a, a um, differing viewpoint. I sort of said this on Twitter, but I I have seen the film three times now. I'm probably going to see it again um, tomorrow, and it may be my favorite film of the year. Wow. I absolutely love this movie. Um, while I agree with you that some of the jokes fell flat, a lot of them did work for me. Hmm. I laughed quite a lot in this film. Um, I liked all of the characters. Really? Even yes, I did. I enjoyed. I enjoyed all of the characters. Even douchebaggy. Um, even douchebaggy boyfriend. Well, one of the things I like about this film is it is very much a slasher film. But what I like about it is, to me, it was a good slasher film because all the slasher films that I've seen, I have never liked any of the characters. I did not give two shits about anything that happened to anybody in any of the films. And and there's a reason behind that. But honestly, um, the boys are going to be discussing that in a piece coming up soon. So I'm going to leave that quiet. Okay. I thoroughly liked all of the characters and I liked the fact, like I know some people have complained that that douchebaggy boyfriend survived. And my response to that was exactly because you expected him to die. One of the things that I think this film does really well is that it, it takes and, and occasionally subverts the standard slasher. Like one of the things that I like, one of the things that happened within the first like 15 minutes that when Walter and I saw, we just instantly gilled at was when he, when, when he killed the kid. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was not expecting that. I'm like, okay, child killing in the first 20 minutes. We are good to go. By the way, folks, spoilers. And then when it came to that amazing tracking shot, when he's going through the house and he passed by the baby, Right. I loved, I absolutely loved the fact that I'm sitting there and Walter said the same thing. We're both going, oh my God, is he really going to kill a kid? Are they really going to have him kill a baby? And I've talked to other people who've seen it and liked the film. And they, everybody that I've talked to has been like, they were going to get really, really mad. Like genuinely like start to hate this movie if they killed the baby. And they all felt a sigh of relief when they didn't do it. And I know um, Gordon has gotten, or Green, whatever his name is, has gotten some flack for that scene. And my response is, I think he did the right thing. The whole, I think the whole reason, thematically, that the kid was killed in the beginning was to make you wonder, is, are they going to kill the baby? I really do think that, 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 that killing the kid was the setup for the payoff on the is he or won't he, or will he or won't he kill the baby thing. Yeah, I can because, I can see that, but but now we're we're in a we're in a a moral hierarchy. So is it more evil to kill a baby, or you know, who basically doesn't understand what's happening to it and can't feel fear? And is it less evil to kill a child who can experience his own mortality in in, in some way? Uh, well, no. res- uh, that that is very true. My response to that is considering how, especially in American cinema, as opposed to um, especially in Italian cinema, we have a thing against harming children. To me, it's very much a slasher film and never rises above the weaknesses inherent in the genre. And I was thinking while I was watching that it's almost structured like a drinking game. Because every time someone looks at a window or is talking on the phone, you know Michael is going to teleport magically and suddenly behind them. Yeah, you know, he's a big ass lummox in hobnailed work boots 
whose footsteps crash and echo like an army marching in that gas station bathroom, but he can also sneak up on housewives like a ninja. <laughs> I, under- I, I understand that. But to me, and again, this is I, as someone who doesn't like slasher films, well, I, I don't have a problem with that in this particular film, only because this film tried, and I think it succeeded to a degree, to a very large degree, in making... Michael Myers, just the boogeyman. That was, like I said, that was the whole point of the original film. Michael Myers was the boogeyman. He wasn't meant to be a person. He was meant to be, you know, John Carpenter has always, that's why he's only called the shape in the script. You know, Michael Myers isn't supposed to be a person. He's supposed to be a force of nature. Okay. And that's one of the reasons why I think four, five, and six, well, actually two, and then four, five, and six utterly destroyed any sense of scares that you could get from the character because they, they they gave him okay now he's the sister and oh look now now we've got a whole bunch of unlikable characters from Achilles is going about going after his sister I, I the thing like the, the two tracking shots when he's just going around killing in in this film I really enjoyed because it brought back the randomness he was just going around killing there in the in that, those sections there wasn't any rhyme or reason to it. He was just killing. He was just a force. Here's, I think you put your finger in a way on something that I disliked about the movie and and the origin of, of a weakness in the script. I think when I say that the, the jokes didn't land for me, let me state for the record that I saw it in a theater by myself. Okay. At like a four o'clock showing. And I think- Oh God. But I think the, the problem is, you know how in the, the 80s slasher movies, there's always that one horrible douchebaggy character that you you hope dies. And then when they do, that's your laugh kill. You get comedy writers and they're going like, oh, let's make them all funny. Let's make them all douchebags. But you see, I the genre doesn't work that way. The genre doesn't work that way. You've got to have you've got to be afraid that people are going to die. And then as a change of pace, as a relief, you've got that one kill where you're you're on the murderer's side. But to me, the biggest problem is it wasn't scary. Not at all. Because unlike the 1978 Halloween, there was nobody in the cast to be afraid for. There was not a single character I desperately did not want to see die, with with the possible exception of Laurie. I didn't believe for a second that at any point Laurie was in legitimate mortal danger. There was one scene where I was, t- the scene at the door when he busted the door and he's choking her, that that scene genuinely for Lori, I genuinely thought, and I'm going to say it, I did think, and this, this, was, this was one of the scenes that made me cheer. When she got knocked off of the balcony. Oh, didn't you see that coming a mile away? I should have, but I didn't. It's the, I, it's the same house. And what's really funny is there's a reason why that was the same house. And um, I actually love, like that because for me, when, when once I realized what that was, I was like, oh my god, she never fucking got over this. Lori's even more fucked up in this movie than she was in H two O. Right, but as soon as Michael looks over the balcony, I mean, because I oh, as soon as, as soon as he started to look over the balcony, okay, yeah, I mean, I mean, when sh- that happened, then I was going, oh my god, please, are they going to do this? Are they going to do this? And I did. I cheered. I absolutely cheered because I thought that shot and the shot when Michael's kind of looking. There's a shot where Michael's looking in the mirror, in a window, and all of a sudden, Lori's face fades into the window. That was cool. I did like that. 
those two shots, because like the whole movie, I'm sitting there going, every Halloween has done some shot where Michael's face is materializing the blackness. When's that shot going to happen? When's that shot going to happen? And then the fact that it was Laurie, I really like the fact that two of the most iconic Michael Myers bits were given to Laurie in this film. I like the switch between that she's become the hunter. And I, I like the scene where she's outside the house and she sees Michael through a window in the second story and, and she lifts a rifle, she takes a bead. I go, well, if she misses, she looks like an idiot. And yep. if she hits him uh, and he doesn't die, I'm going to roll my eyes. She goes for a headshot and, and a mirror shatters. She was shooting yep. at his reflection. Thought, okay, you fooled me with that. Good one. But here's And, and, and the other thing mm-hmm. I liked about that is, come on, the first time she shoots him, she fucking nailed him. That's the problem. It's like, if you have found out over the years that that going for a center mass shot with Michael Myers doesn't do you any good because apparently he he shops exclusively for Kevlar-lined, bulletproof, tactical fleet farm coveralls and can't be hurt, then just go for a headshot. It's not like he's not wearing a big, white, blobby now, mask that shows up in the dark. But here's the thing that gets me about this movie, and not just the movie, the the franchise in general. Well, yeah. I gave it the benefit of the doubt in earlier movies until I just could, you know, I never even saw five or six. I just. You're I, lucky. I They're quit. really pieces of shit. They that's, are pieces of shit. That's what I heard. I, I just sort of bailed out. But I this time I did not buy the avenging, unstoppable sexagenarian. I mean, the, Michael Myers is over 60 years old in this movie. They, they make a point of it. He was six years old in 1963. Now, I'm not that old, but all I could think about was that while this guy was going on his remorseless killing spree, he had chronic lower back pain and had to stop frequently to pee. Thinking about it afterwards, I, I, those jokes are there. I completely agree with you. But, but, dude. Why didn't they go for the one? They didn't go for one. Comedy writers, they don't go for one like, you know, he, he chops someone's head off and they're like, oh, boy, my bursitis, you know. Grab but here, but like, like I said, the, the, reason, the reason why I think in the film it didn't bother me was because for the first time since the original film, Michael Myers was the boogeyman again. Mm-hmm. Not a guy killing his sister. He was the boogeyman. Yes, you're right. Septuagenarian, make the jokes all you want. And I made the jokes after the fact. But in the moment watching the film, it was the shape. Not a guy. He was the shape. And so I, he was a vaguely supernatural force. So I bought into it. Even the beginning. Like as soon as John Carpenter. And I think uh, I think part of the thing for me was having John Carpenter score it. I did like the music. Because it, 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 I mean, as soon as that the new theme song started, and I'm sorry, I love the way they that as soon as like the opening credits, and the fact that it was in the same font as the original, mm-hmm. and that music starts in the way the pumpkin rises from the ashes, I'm like, oh my god, this is effing beautiful. So the film had me from the opening credits. Right. And unfortunately, I love the character of Laurie Strode and Jamie Lee Curtis, I think fucking nailed, nailed this film even more so than h2o because i genuinely liked the stuff about trauma and and watching the fact that how her whole family was fucked up much more so than h2o and i liked judy greer i I liked the granddaughter the scene when the granddaughter is actually being chased Mm mm-hmm I was into that as much as I was, as I am at the end of the original Halloween. I was actually on the edge of my seat because I'm like, okay, who's going to survive? Who how, are, are all the straw women going to survive or that who's going to die? I was into that. I, I was genuinely afraid for her in that scene when she was being chased. 
let me let me throw out the one bad thing real fast because I will agree. While the visualist in me loved this sequence, the 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 writer in me and and I'm going. I know why they did it this way because if it made money, they want to do another one and start the whole thing over again. But if I would have done this, I would have ended the film when they're standing there at, after they set the trap for Michael and he's like in the flaming basement. As much as I loved the shot of him just standing up there looking at them, Laurie should have shot him in the face. Uh, yeah, but why would a bullet work now when it hasn't worked and he's been shot five times previously? I, I, I agree with you on that. I mean, I, 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 well, Coach, although to be fair, yeah, he'd only been, he, thankfully, he hadn't, he hadn't been shot in the eyes. But I mean, he hasn't actually been, at least in this version, he has not been shot in the face. Yeah, it's not going to do anything, but it'll make me feel better. I will confess that, that I enjoyed in the face. I, I enjoyed the last little gotcha moment in Laurie's house. I mean, it was stupid, but it was cool. However, when, when she says, this house isn't a cage, it's a trap, to, yeah, okay. to which I say, yeah, thanks, Admiral Akbar. <laughs> I, I, I was prepared to go even further while watching it. I'm going, yeah, it's not a cage. It's not a trap. It's the board game Mousetrap, which was also fun, but somewhat improbable. <laughs> and I enjoy and what the what really the other bit that really surprised me that I was very very happy for was uh, Judy Greer's one little strong moment. Yes, I did like that, and I I, I despaired of it ever happening. So w- when they turned it around, I mean, it wasn't a sh- it wasn't a shock, but it was very. It was very welcome. I, I really it, yeah no it wasn't a shock, but it was definitely a okay good. She's not as as we thought she was. Yeah, there's a critic named Grace Randolph, who I I, I know who she is. Okay, but right behind the uh, behind the trailer. Yeah, and, I know I know Grace Randolph. Okay, well I, I I don't know her, but I know of her. Right, I generally stay away from YouTube reviews. Uh, but I I genuinely stay away from her. Okay. She said that Jamie Lee Curtis was basically playing an incompetent Sarah Connor. You know, 40, 40 years to plan and train for this, and, and she survives it through sheer dumb luck. I go, eh. whether you agree with that depends on whether you think that this was all part of an elaborate plan to get him in the basement. If it was, it was a stupid plan that did rely on dumb luck, because the odds of that working out seem somewhat random. But I, I don't think it's in. I don't think it's entirely fair, but she was getting her ass kicked pretty much yes. through that yes, whole sequence. And that was actually, I I kind of liked that, though. I liked the fact that, I mean, okay, you say it's in, you, she's an incompetent Sarah Connor. I'm looking at, like, as a woman who, was, who had suffered a severe trauma and spent 40 years building fort and just hadn't done enough or wasn't, wasn't actually prepared for it. Or is a more realistic Sarah Connor because... Or, thank you. That's a better way of putting it. Thank you, because God... Although, come on now. Come on now. Let's, we, we, we must all agree with, with James Cameron that Sarah Connor is the greatest heroine ever. <laughs> You're not going to let that go, are you? No, I'm not. That, that really a, got under I, your skin. Yes, it did. I'm right. sorry. That, that just... Ugh. We did have a, a, a 10 minute James Cameron hate as a bonus track on one of our, I think on the Wonder Woman show. So it was the Wonder Woman show. Yes, exactly. But anyway, the, the thing that I will say is I do get why I get why some people don't like it. And I know I actually, I actually got blocked by somebody. My first block. Your first? My first actual block was Ma- I was. Mazel Tov. Thank you. Um, so I was getting not an argument with somebody, but this guy absolutely hated it. And mm-hmm. I was trying to figure out why he did. We're talking like Star Wars, The Last Jedi style hate. Oh, 
and I was trying to figure out why. I was genuinely trying to figure out why. Now, you're not liking the film. I completely understand from where you from where you're coming from. I get it. Whether I agree with you or not, I know why you think, I get why you think this way, okay? I wanted to understand this person's hate, and um, I got no real explanation. And finally, I said, let me guess, you're a fan of 4, 5, and 6. And that block got me blocked. (laughs) Them's fighting words. Yep, that's what got me blocked. I'm like, oh, I'm right. You hate the shittiest movies in the franchise. Okay, then. Hmm. There were a number of things I did like. I just didn't love. It was was decently if maybe not stylishly shot. Um, the annoying podcasters were killed off almost immediately, which I think yes. we, we were all rooting for. And I, what I thought was, just, even with them, I love the fact that, yeah, yeah that, that um, they, they, t- they say that they're investigative journalists and the one says they're podcasters. And I love that joke. I thought that was funny. Yeah. The acting was, was uh, marginally better than the material deserves. I, I did. Okay, question real fast. Question real fast. I have to ask, what'd you think of the kid? Did the kid annoy you? Because I know uh, how you are with child actors. No, no. Um, I, I'm glad you like the kid. He wasn't annoying me, but I'm going, oh, quippy, dirty mouth sitcom kid. This could get annoying. But you see, and that was the thing is, I liked that scene between him and the babysitter. I, that was that's another reason why I, why the, the scare when my, when Michael showed up in the house worked for me is I liked those two characters. I enjoyed I enjoyed them together. They did seem to have a real relationship. And that was the thing. I really felt like all of the characters who had, everybody felt real to me in this film. Mm. Mm. I know, I know, I know. The the two cops having that conversation about a sandwich felt like the the guys took a conversation they had while sitting in a a drive-thru line and said, oh, let's throw that in the movie. That's never a good idea. Only Uh, playing devil's advocate. I'm only playing devil's advocate here because I agree with you, but going to another thing that everybody thinks is a masterpiece of horror, almost the exact same style of conversation was had in the pilot episode of The Walking Dead. There's a, there's a scene between Shane and Rick before in the very beginning of the pilot episode that I thought almost the exact same thing you thought about that scene. I don't have a problem with the device. It's like, okay, we're dealing with, uh, in zomb- in the case of zombies, basically supernatural horror. In this case, kind of the same thing, since Michael's vaguely impervious to bullets. Vaguely supernatural. So I get the sense that you want to have the most ordinary, quotidian things, conversations, concerns, butting up against that to, to, to heighten the contradictions, as they say. That's fine. But this, the scene sounded painfully written. You know, okay. it would have been better if they just uh, had the actors improv. But anyway, um, so let me ask you a question yes. uh, and don't block me for this. <laughs> I don't okay. mean it to be I don't mean it to be insulting, but we were talking about this earlier. Why is this fundamentally better than strip nude for your killer? I liked the characters. Really? To me, they're they're the same movie because the, the characters are annoying. The kills are telegraphed from a thousand miles away. The the hero doesn't do much until the very end and not much then. Um, and at least Strip Nude had a motive for the murders. With Halloween, there's not even mystery. There's there's just a remorseless, unstoppable force of evil that I guess I sort of bought in 1978, but which I really don't think has aged well. Because you can get that shit on the news. You know what? Actually, maybe that's it. Perhaps reality has overtaken fiction. And with everything that's going on now, 
I just don't need this from the movies anymore. That's actually kind of a valid point. But um, no, for me, like I said, I, I'm watching this film and um, that's the thing. The remorseless evil, I, it, all, it all goes back to that's what Carpenter originally envisioned for the character. Now, granted, this is going to get a sequel and I'm not happy about it, but oh, well, I kind of wish that I wished that it ended at Halloween four. I wish it ended at H2O. You know, I mean, they're going to keep doing it. But I mean, I may actually stop with this one. I bet you don't. I bet you don't. Well, Jamie Lee Curtis has said that if David Gordon Green comes back, she'll come back. She will come back. And if that happens, I will come back. You know but what? I are... I probably will too. It's not like I'm taking a um I'm not gonna die on this hill. I'm not planting my flag and taking a moral stand. I you know, it's like, oh well, if it gets good reviews, I'll probably go see it. I liked her in this. She it was fun seeing her again. I don't know. It's just it felt this film felt like I was watching the original again. Okay. Right. And I remember like the first time I saw Halloween. It was when it first premiered on NBC back in 81, I believe. Oh, with, with the uh, added footage? That they yes, the very first time it was ever on television. I was at my best friend's house. I was spending the night, and his parents were going to watch it downstairs. We weren't allowed to watch it. And we snuck downstairs, and we sat on the steps, <laughs> and we could see the TV. The, the sofa was, was the back was to us. The parents, His parents didn't know that we were there. So we sat there, and we watched. We, we missed, I think... We know we got to watch the entire film, except that 11 year old me actually left the staircase towards the end of the film. Oh, where'd you go? I actually missed the last 30 seconds of the movie. Did you have to pee? No, the shot when uh, in the original, when um, after she sends the kids away and she's just sitting there in the background, you just see him silently sit up yep. and turn his head towards her. Mm-hmm. That scared the shit out of me and I ran away. Mm. Okay. I was like, on edge for the whole last uh, that whole last sequence of the film and i still end to this day i can watch the film today and like the last 20 minutes i still get a little ooh as the film goes on but um the first time i saw it, that that sit up and turn scared the living fuck out of 11 year old me now at this point i was already a film nerd i remember sitting there thinking not you're just spending the, the beginning of this we're just getting to know these people this i I wasn't thinking about them, but I'm like these people. And then when the bash started happening, I was getting into it. And I felt the same way again in this one. You spent the beginning of the game to know these people. I thought they were interesting. And then when the bash started happening again, I was just, I was into it. Yeah, my first experience with Halloween was somewhat different uh, because I saw it in a movie theater and because I'm pretty sure I saw it alone due to the fact that I had a difficult childhood and the local movie house was a sanctuary and a refuge and for a modest percentage of my paper route money i could legitimately disappear for four maybe five hours kids there were double features back in those days two movies for the price of one big screens um kids with your hula hoops and your ipads and your youtubes exactly so i remember enjoying it up until the moment where he sat up. And then I thought, what the hell is this bullshit? Because he had just gotten a coat hanger rammed into his eye. Now, it's not like I necessarily thought that was enough to kill him. In fact, it was kind of a feeble, but, you know, hastily improvised weapon. But I'm thinking, he's not just going to pop up. I mean, if I just get an eyelash in my eye, I'm done for the day. That shit hurts. 
And here he is, rising and shining like his eyeball wasn't just brutally kebobbed. That broke the willing suspension of disbelief. From then on, my suspension of disbelief was wholly non-consensual. Understood. I get get it. Like I said, I bought into... I totally bought into, you know, Michael Myers as the shape. I liked him as the as the boogeyman. I didn't like it when he became just a serial killer, if that makes sense. Oh, it makes it makes perfect sense. I mean, it, it, there's nothing special about it. Again, that's you're, you're back to strip nude for your killer. Yeah. Um, I mean, in, in some ways, I, I, I kind of respect the giallo uh, form because they don't take the easy way out of having your killer be magical and bulletproof and able to teleport like Michael does. Um, they actually are human beings who have to, you know, like break a window to get in and kill somebody. Right. But I know this was deliberate on Carpenter's part. You don't really know what the hell Michael is. Carpenter has been saying that from the, that's one of the reasons why he didn't want to do Halloween too. Right. That because was what he was specifically trying to do is you didn't know. Once you give somebody relatives, uh, a backstory, and start to explain them, they lose all of their cool, which is like one of the reasons I really didn't want to see Solo. Like, I didn't think we needed that movie because the more you explain something that's cool, the less cool it becomes. And that's that's absolutely the the, the thing with Michael. I, I, I never craved... Any information, I, any any of his biography. For me, it, it really, it's never been about Michael. It's always been about Laurie. I think I fell in love with Jamie Lee Curtis as a kid. That may, that may, have, been one of my, that may have been like an, an early pre-Michelle Pfeiffer straight crush. Let me ask you a, another question that bugged me. And it's, okay. not, it's not solely this movie uh, that, that commits this crime. But I would like to know, when people are menaced by remorseless, invincible killers in public toilets... Why don't they ever pull up their pants? I mean, you're going to die anyway. Die with your pants on. You know, that thought never even crossed my mind when that scene popped up. Like, boy, how badly do you have to poop is my thought. That's (laughs) That's funny. I honestly, like I said, I mean, I, I just, I adore this movie. I, I, I am not, I'm not even ashamed to admit it. This was, and I'm going to use this example. This was the force awakens for horror films for me. and, And this was nostalgia that worked. Okay, let's let that be the last word. And we'll be right back with the unknown spooky challenge. Ooh. <laughs> Who are you? Halloween night, 1963, in Haddonfield, Illinois, there would be a gruesome case of sibling rivalry between kids of the Myers family. When Michael, a six-year-old leisurely, walked into his sister's room silently and butchered her body so violently, he left for a mental facility. And when the state hospital deputy relaxed the maximum security, then Michael would stop waiting patiently for another chance at a murder spree. His doctor, Seth Loomis, tried legally to put him away for Eternity. Said my patient has no humanity But others did not exactly agree They said Michael was the epitome Of the ideal patient's activity No crying, no talking, no moving He would just sit and stare absentmindedly Yet 15 years later he wandered free By breaking out from his captivity Now all he had left to do was to flee Back to his old peaceful community Where his house was sold by Strode Realty Whose daughter became inevitably The subject of all his hostility A true 
Michael Myers authority Who has the uncanny proclivity To suffer no serious injury While friends who are in her vicinity Without fail become a casualty They fall victim to his insanity They're strangled and mangled creatively They're grabbed and then stabbed hard repeatedly They're decapitated so easily You'd think he'd get bored from monotony He kills each one individually Employing equal opportunity It's quality versus more quantity He'd relive a childhood memory To the best of his own ability But there would not be much difficulty Since he seems to have no mortality Or reason or conscience entirely Devoid of any personality His sense of life and death and good and evil Seemed extremely rudimentary The boogeyman's responsibility Is to maintain the notoriety Of death as an impossibility Or fade slowly into obscurity But you are a miracle given this killer the third degree You vanquished the evil amazingly Ignored all your father's some OCD To check up on his heart accordingly So while he is lying there lifelessly While you are still breathing so heavily You sit there and thank God that finally It's over, it's done with him luckily You planned each potential contingency You blinded his eyes temporarily You drove that knife through his chest cavity You shot him in every extremity You forced him right off of the balcony There's no way in hell that he possibly get up and walk right off your property That stuff only happens on the TV So you'll be safe in police custody They'll quickly make a positive ID Of Michael's cold twisted anatomy You'll garner the neighborhood sympathy And after a good deal of therapy You'll be back in touch with reality And understand why philosophically The apple does not fall far from the tree When creating our own worst enemy And welcome to this week's Unknown Movie Challenge. This time it's a spooky Halloween classic. And I've already oversold it. Yes, you have. Way oversold it. This film was suggested to us on Facebook. And if you'd like to be a dick and suggest a movie uh, for the show, you can leave a message on the Slim Gullion Facebook page or at our website, theslumgullion.com. I didn't know the Slim Gullion has a Facebook page. I'm, I'm not on Facebook anymore. I, I did not know that. Uh, okay, you can message me on Facebook then. <laughs> the I'll only way it. you can find me is on the Twitter. Sorry, folks. That's another way. You can also suggest movies by tweeting at Jeff. He's at the Slumgullion. Or Scott at Scott Clevenger. Because I have no imagination. And uh, you can email us at the Slumgullion at AOL.com. And why is it AOL.com, oh lord? Because it's not like there's anything else in that geriatric ghost town, so there's plenty of room for mail, especially poison pen letters that say, Hey, why don't you guys do Adam Age Vampire? Snicker, snicker, snicker. Ha uh-huh. ha. Who suggested this, by the way? Do you know who we have to thank? Carl Erickson. Carl, that's right. Carl, thank you. I hated the film, but I thank you for suggesting it. Yes. Part of the struggle we have is finding something... Uh, good to do for the Unknown Movie Challenge. We go through a lot of things, good and bad, and uh, sometimes it's helpful just to be told what to do. Ordinarily, I can't, but in this case, I can sort of understand the appeal of uh, being the S in a BDSM relationship. <laughs> and here, we even did something. We even did something cool because I found two different cuts of the film. Yes. Now, I watched 
the 126 minute and 13 second American release called Adam Age Vampire. Well, Scott, what did you watch? Uh, I watched the 141 minute version called, let me get this absolutely right. I do not want to defame Adam Age Vampire. The whole title is Sadoc Lerede di Satana or mm. The Heir of Satan. Ooh, oh, wow. He's no, he's not the heir of Satan. Uh, he's he's not, not even the heir of pay. He's not even the heir of, 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 of Mitch McConnell. He's not, he's not even a, a member of the immediate satanic family. He is possibly a distant Satan cousin who does not get invited to Thanksgiving or whatever. Whatever the blood sacrifice equivalent of Thanksgiving is. Sadek wouldn't even be able, be allowed to wash Anton LaVey's cum sock. Uh, I don't really know if that would be an honor or a punishment or a hazing. <laughs> so I'm not sure how to feel about that. But you're probably right. I'm not, I'm not really uh, acquainted with the ins and outs and the finer points of uh, satanic etiquette <laughs> but so yeah we watched we decided that we were going to watch both cuts of the film and do a little bit of a compare and contrast and yours was even a little bit different because you said yours had like uh, what like three different languages or something like that it was cobbled together from i think at least two separate european cuts and the american english dub so every once in a while the the english language would drop out and there would be lengthy sections in Italian or French, and sometimes both. Uh, so I was having to rely on the subtitles there. I don't know how I drew the short stick and wound up watching the long version, but... You volunteered. I wanted to watch the longer version, but you called it first, and now looking back on it, I'm very happy about that. So uh, I, I achieved this the way I, I do most of my accomplishments, through the power of bad decision-making. Yes, exactly. So you keep doing what you're doing, Scott. I'm fine with that. It's working for you. Well, that's good. <laughs> In this case, it worked out perfectly for me. I am so glad. Although, I have to admit, I have a feeling that I missed some boobs. Uh, no, you did not. I did not miss boobs. Here's the thing about the way this film was cut. This is the first time I've seen an Italian or European horror movie that was fairly severely cut for the American market, and the cuts were all plot-related. There was no nudity. There was no gore. There was nothing that usually attracts the censor's scissors. It was just subplots and a few comic relief characters, which I'm sure nobody missed. Well, I got to tell you, that makes a lot of sense because let me tell you something, man. The 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 under 90 minute version, Adam H. Vampire, makes no motherfucking sense. I, you know what? I had a feeling it probably didn't because when it was switching to Italian or French, I'm going like, Wait, how could they lose that? And it's it's right in the middle. Often it's right in the middle of scenes. And they go, wait, they're giving some information that seems important here. All right. I wonder. Hmm. Yeah. We'll go, as we as we wend our way through this experience together. Yes. Uh, we'll maybe get a sense of just how badly this thing was chopped up for TV. Now, um, I'm going to bet, I am going to bet that we had a completely different opening, okay? Let me let me explain my opening first, okay? Then you can tell me where it varied, because I'm pretty sure it did. Okay. All right. Now, for me, Adam Age Vampire begins after a uh, really cheesy, we're talking like not even film, filmation would look at this animation and go, ew, <laughs> um, 
vampire bat flying, which becomes the V in Adam Age Vampire. But as soon as the credits end, we are immediately transported to a blonde woman barely wearing any clothing running into her dressing room. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's... There's something before that, isn't yes, there? Yes, there is. Let, let's get into it. First, I, I, I do want to note that when we were taught, we were we were on the phone talking about this. Uh, Jeff got excited when the credits started to unspool because it looked like Mario Bava was involved, but it was actually Mario Fava. Yeah, I realize that now. Insert sad trombone music here. Wah, wah, wah. Okay, so in, in the European cut, we traveled to fabulous Italy. Although I think, based on the the character names, it's supposed to be France. But it was filmed in Vancouver. <laughs> As everything is. And we joined Pierre and Jeanette and their dysfunctional relationship already in progress. Uh, Jeanette is a platinum blonde who strips in a nightclub. Pierre is in the Navy, or maybe he's an airline pilot. I don't know at this point. It's an Italian uniform and it's in black and white. It's very unhelpful. And anyway, he is done with Jeanette, the little tramp, but he still comes to her show because it's important to come out and support live theater. So you do see a bit of her show then? You do see a bit of her, her strip tease, which there's more tease than strip, let's put it that way. A quick tangent for MST3K fans. Pierre was in Hercules Unchained with Steve Reeves. <gasps> and. I've- but I recognized yeah. him. Yeah. And for Rift Tracks fans, he was in Giant of Marathon. Yes. With Steve Reeves. Holy crap. Oh, wow. Okay. I feel so much better now because that was the one thing that kept me going to this movie. Honestly, was who is he? I know him. So this is, I guess this is where the American cut picks up because Pierre goes back to Jeanette's dressing room to break up with her, even though it looks like he'd, he'd already broken up with her once in the previous scene. But I guess it's like trying to eat just one Lay's potato chip. And you can't break up just once. Exactly. And he gives her an ultimatum, either him or public nudity, three shows a night. And but since she's already performing there, obviously she's made her choice. Right, exactly. She she chose stripping, you know, because a girl's got to live and he's shipping out for two months. So he's breaking their engagement. So naturally he asked her to return the gun he gave her. It, it was his mother's gun and has a lot of sentimental value. She keeps it. The little tramp. Pierre leaves in a huff and Jeanette refuses to do another show and instead gets in her jaunty Italian sports car and drives at a moderate pace until some jerk fails to dim his lights, causing her to scream and burst into flames, then drive straight down a cliff. What made me laugh right off the bat was, in the American cut, that car wreck happens like two minutes into the movie. (laughs) Because quite literally, the, the first thing you see is her entering the dressing room. Don't leave me, don't you understand, Pierre? We belong together, and oh my fucking God, I hate that shit already. Right off the bat. But you love me, we belong together, we must be together forever. Fuck you, get over it. But then and then quite literally the very next shot, we don't even see her leave the club. It's like all of a sudden she's in her car driving mm. and then boom. So before it even reaches three minutes, she's disfigured. Awesome. Well, now we're going to jump ahead three months. Jeanette's in a hospital with nothing to keep her company, but a picture of Pierre breaking up with her. She's hideously scarred. Uh, deformed and mutilated. She looks no worse than fucking uh, what's-her-face did in Tim Burton's Batman. Uh, and Alicia. She doesn't look... I mean, she looks a little bit worse than Anna Alicia, but still, it's on one side of her face. She Veronica lakes her hair. No one's going to notice. She'd be fine. <laughs> she's... Well, yeah. I mean, she's, she's like, at most, a minor league Two-Face. Uh, she's, she's half of... A face and a half. She's, she's a, It's a face, a face and a half. But everybody, nurses... Doctors, passers-by, 
every medical professional she meets is more than happy to say, you're hideously deformed, you're mutilated beyond all hope, medical science can do nothing for you, this is how you will be forever. Yes, indeed. So the doctor says, hey, but don't kill yourself. I have an idea. Rather than stripping, you can just get a new job. And I would strongly recommend something in the telemarketing field. Okay, because in my version, she's in the hospital being told how horrible she looks, and it immediately cuts to um, the other obsessive chick talking to the doctor. I mean, we got barely anything in the hospital on my cut. Once again, it's just, oh, I'm horrible, I'm hideous, I should kill myself, and then cut to, look at this, this is perfect for your experiments, and I love you so much, you must be mine, even though she never actually says that, but we know. Yeah, no, in the Italian cut, we get at least uh, two minutes of people agreeing with her. That she's horrible. Yeah, so uh, a woman named Monique is talking to, at this point, an off-camera male figure. A hand. She's talking to a hand. She she literally talks to the hand. Talks to the hand, exactly. And uh, she says, oh, I found the perfect subject, as you say, for for your experiments. Uh, Let me go entice her in the creepiest way possible. So uh, Monique is a saucy brunette. So we can tell right away that she's that scars or not, she's going to lose out to the platinum blonde Jeanette. Because you know within 30 seconds that she she is, how shall I put this politely, um, damp for the doctor? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the doctor says, make sure no one sees you, blah, blah, blah. So she sneaks into the hospital wearing the most. She looks like she's dressed like, where in the world is Carmen Sandiego? she's in this the trench coat the glasses she is doing her best to not look inconspicuous by looking as inconspicuous as possible exactly monique tells her that Jeanette that she needs a revolutionary beauty treatment because you know half her face is a massive fugly scar tissue that makes her look like harvey dent Jeanette is really kind of passive aggressive about accepting the offer when Monique goes she smashes her mirror in despair and, and then closes the window and smashes the window right, in then despair. she breaks the window so maybe it's not despair maybe she just disapproves of glass which pulls- does not bode well for the new M. Night Shyamalan film so she pulls a Beretta automatic I assume it's Pierre's uh, mother's heirloom pistol and uh, she gets ready to blow her brains out I have say right off the bat um, our ha- a face and a half got annoyed me with her constant oh i'm horrible leave me alone <laughs> she does that a lot she well yeah and it's not just about her face because uh spoiler alert she she does get treatments that at least temporarily remove the scars she does it about everything about her relationship with the doctor about her relationship with pierre about whether or not she can get out the front gate she's just she's whining and moaning and pissing and crying and everything line she has that throbbing voice like yeah. she's just about to like whoever's dubbing for her is it just about to break into tears because they can't stand watching another second of this on the adr stage can't say i blame them anyway uh, monique does manage to interrupt the suicide and entices Jeanette to sign away her life to a mad scientist she's never met. No, uh, don't leave me alone. I'm horrible. Ah! Yeah, and you know, the whole scene actually is kind of how I imagine it feels to join Scientology. <laughs> Jeanette is not clear yet. No, she's not. Especially that one side of her face. Ooh. So uh, let's cut to our lair. The scientist, Dr. Levin, has a very nice lab. It's complete with blinky lights and deformed animals and a mute assistant. So it's got all the candy. And Dr. Levin is narrating his achievements into a tape recorder. 
And his resume is a bit of a mixed bag. He's he's cured cancer, which is nice, and invented a serum called Derma 28, which cures hideous disfigurements caused by his previous invention, Derma 25. I remember uh, Derma 25 can also be cured by radiation in uh, the Atom Age. That's that's where that's where the Atom Age comes in. Yeah, Derma 28 uh, has never been tested on humans, however. So uh, Monique injects herself with Derma-25, forcing the doctor to try out Derma-28 on her. Why did you do this to me? I'm too scared to try this on a person. That's what I did to myself, so you would be forced to chew it. So she loves him in the creepiest, most insane way possible. She wants Kind of like how Jeanette loves Pierre, it seems. Like, all of the women in this movie have very obsessive love lives, shall we say? And really poor taste in men. Also, we should say that as well, yes. All right. Monique's plan works. Dr. Levin's anti-monster formula cures his monster-making formula. So I guess it's kind of a push, actually. Maybe if they just didn't use the first one, they would need the second one. But, you know, it, it's, it, it, is, not, it is not my place to, to disentangle the Gordian knot of monster movie logic. So anyway, he's happy. He's thrilled that, that his stuff works. So taking advantage of, of his glee, Monique makes her move. And the doctor looks a little surprised, uh, like like he forgot she was obsessively in love with him. And he goes, oh, yeah, no, let's go out and celebrate. But she says, no, let's both stay home together with our records. Yes, I remember that so line. So I guess in Italy, when you cure cancer and hideous disfigurement, you throw a platter party? I I don't know. Reiner Records used to use that clip uh, to advertise <laughs> their products. I remember. So did KTEL. Oh, well, there you go. So Jeanette shows up at the doctor's mansion, again, really trying to be inconspicuous by wearing gigantic Jackie Onassis sunglasses and a leopard skin overcoat with the collar turned up basically over her whole head. She meets the doctor, making me realize at that moment that in a certain light, he looks like Will Ferrell playing the mad scientist from an Italian horror film in an, in an SNL sketch. Scott, I thought the exact same thing. <laughs> it, you, you couldn't, it's, it's inescapable. Uh, I shit, that is hysterical. Yeah, it's easy. <laughs> he ain't lying here, folks. Bit of trivia, Dr. Levin is portrayed by Alberto Lupo, who was married to Lila Rocco, who was the lead nipple provider in Playgirls and the Vampire. I'm sorry. Nipple provider sounds like somebody at the craft services. <laughs> Do you need your nipples today? <laughs> Let me check the call sheet. <laughs> yeah, wait, wait. Uh, yes, we need nipples. Where is she? <laughs> the nipple provider. That's the sequel to the horse whisperer. <laughs> Okay, sorry, tangent over. Moving on. All right, moving on. Uh, so, meanwhile, as all this is going on, uh, Pierre's ship docks, and he suddenly has the exact opposite reaction from the guy in the song Brandy. Sure, his life, his love, and his lady is the sea, but he does want to marry Jeanette now. So, take that, looking glass. The, so, the doctor is going to experiment on Jeanette, but first, at least in the cut I watched, there's a okay. really long scene where he walks around with a flashlight, like it's one of those, like he's William Conrad and it's a first alert commercial. 
And, uh, oh, and in classic Bella Lugosi tradition, he beats up the mute because the mute assistant got drunk and forgot to turn on the generator. Then he finds water damage in the basement. What? Wow. Yeah. And, okay. Uh, now I saw him, I saw him beat up the mute because he let the bat, like he let the, uh, power go out. Mm-hmm. I got that part. Yeah. No, there's a long scene where he finds water dripping in the basement. The plaster has washed off. It's exposed some bricks or old stones. He picks up a sledgehammer. He knocks a hole in the wall for some reason. He crawls through. Why he decided to knock a hole in his own wall is not clear at this point. It becomes clear later, but makes no more sense. So we'll wait until we get to that. Oh, so cut to the nightclub from the beginning of the film where Jeanette's relief stripper is shaking her booty to a hilarious bootleg version of tequila. Oh my, oh, okay, that, I got that dance scene. Yeah, and uh, Pierre is drowning his sorrows, uh, I guess hoping she'll show up, because he, I don't, I don't think at this point he knows, he doesn't know she was deformed. He knows she was in an accident and she's stopped coming to work. Back at the lab, the doctor tries and really spectacularly fails to cure Jeanette. Uh, using up all of his Derma 28 and even a little of his Formula 409. But then he, <laughs> then he hits on the idea of using a series of dissolves to remove the scar makeup because it worked in the Wolfman. And bingo, Jeanette is restored to her former beauty. Assuming you now, thought she was beautiful in the first place? Uh, now, I, I do have to say... For this movie, I actually thought the scene where 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 the, she was fixed didn't look that bad because I honestly was expecting what we got later in the movie, the Wolfman effect. Yeah, and it actually did kind of look in the cut that I that I was watching at least it kind of looked like the, the skin was filling up. Right. It yeah. was badly done, but it actually it didn't just look like a wipe. It did look like something was actually happening to the face as opposed to here's a new camera shot. So I actually gave them points for that one point for that particular sequence because I was like, it's a bad special effect, but at least it's not just the Larry Talbot fade. Right. It is, <laughs> it is marginally better than the same effect from uh, a movie done 20 years previously. So, yay. Yeah. Um, whether we or feel she's beautiful or not, and and I I really hope not to get polled. But let's not forget. At this point, we find out that the doctor is in love with her. Oh, is he in love with her? He instantly starts mooning over Jeanette and lightly pawing her, which which of course makes Monique jealous because you know they just had a miraculous scientific breakthrough. So she naturally assumed they'd spend the rest of the evening playing their seventy eights on the hi fi as is traditional in the Italian life sciences. <laughs> Jeanette wakes up, feels her face, discovers that she's cured, and immediately starts making out with the doctor. I, I have to admit that that rang true, because the same thing happened to me when I had my appendix out. So time passes, not as fast as I would hope it would, but yeah. it passes. Jeanette and the doctor are now dressed up and sharing a cocktail in the parlor, uh, while Monique is sulking in her room. Then the doctor has to make it weird by trying to get Jeanette drunk and insisting that she loves him. He says, you love me. You know you love... It's like, all right. Well, to be fair, to be fair, it is almost the exact same thing that she was saying to Pierre in the beginning. You know what? You're right. During the breakup, she was kind of going, you love me. You know you do. We belong together. You're right. Okay. 
I don't know what the film's trying to say with that, but other than, hey, enjoy our cast of narcissists. Yes, um, that's pretty much what it is. Narciss- yeah, this is definitely narcissist was who wrote the screenplay. And that, that this is and so the doctor who's not getting traction with this approach decides to play the you owe me card and says, you are nothing if not mine. You belong to me. I'm the one who restored your beauty. He says that a lot. Yeah. And over the course of this film, there's does. a lot of I own you. Yeah. I made you what you are. Yeah. Yeah. But this is this one is spectacularly incandescently ill-timed because right in the middle of a non-consensual kiss he's planting on her, he notices that her scars are coming back and he gets a thoughtful look on his face that seems to say, OK, maybe I'm not getting laid tonight. Because uh, the problem is they're they're all out of Derma twenty eight and Wolfman dissolves. So the doctor decides to transplant. <laughs> Sorry, the doctor just okay. Good. The thing that made me laugh about this is because it comes out of nowhere. They're they're talking the whole time about the uh, Derma twenty eight and how it's the only thing that can possibly work. And then the out of nowhere, he, the doctor decides to transplant neck glands. Neck glands, neck I say glands. again, from young women. One more time, one more time. Neck, neck glands. glands. And it has to be the neck gland of a young woman. Of While a young, it, beautiful woman. from Preferably, yes. And and this makes no sense based on anything that's come before. But you know what? Darn it, that's what John Carradine would do. Uh, but anyway, it involves murder. And Monique, uh, who realized a long time ago that she wasn't getting laid either, will have no part of it and runs away. And... Uh, the doctor kills Monique, so it's. Confusing. I was gonna say I really had no fucking clue what happened to her. No, no, he. It's even in the the long cut. It's it's a little confusing because the next thing we see is Doctor Levin and cops and a coroner are in her bedroom. She's in bed. She has her glasses on. She's dead. Uh, somehow Doctor Levin has made it look like quote heart paralysis which I'm pretty sure he just made up. I guess you're allowed to do that if you're an MD. And he gets away with it because the coroner starts fangirling over the doctor and says, oh, we don't need an autopsy. I I know heart paralysis when I see it. So the police inspector, who for uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000 fans was in Hercules with Steve Reeves, sits down in the doctor's study and they chat about his time in Japan studying radiation burns. And then we... We few, we lucky few, we get to see photos of actual Hiroshima victims with their radiation-burned skin peeling off, none of whom I'm pretty sure were compensated for their appearance in this piece of shit. Mm. That scene, I wasn't, yeah, I kind of went. I was already out by this point, but when they started showing the act, I'm just like, oh, really, really, really? Yeah, uh, it's like when every once in a while you'll see a movie made in the 30s and, and... you can tell they actually killed an animal. Yeah. Um, it's like, okay, this is it's this is a little reprehensible, but it's also not atypical of movie making in certain European countries who shall remain nameless at this period in history. So we cut to a spinning newspaper headline. Gorilla escapes from zoo, which is exactly the headline you'd see if this was a Bella Lugosi movie. And by the way, that never happened, but they mentioned the gorilla. In the American version, mm-hmm. uh, all of a sudden they start talking about a gorilla, and I had no fucking clue what they were talking about. Probably because they, the American distributor, didn't want to bother uh, doing an insert. But yeah, they bring up a gorilla in my cut. Another reason why I was confused. I'm like, what does this have to do with anything? 
So we cut to the woods immediately after the headline, and there's a sailor and his girlfriend walking around, and they find a dead, bloody young woman. Meanwhile, Jeanette starts to get the heartbreak of psoriasis again, but the the doctor has already used up all of Monique's neck glands. He needs to kill again, and this is the scene you were talking about, uh, where he discovers uh, that he's too much of a pussy to uh, murder indiscriminately. Fortunately, his internal monologue gets a brilliant idea. If a gorilla can savagely kill a girl, then all he has to do is turn himself into a savage beast, and it'll be easy. So he grabs the monster-making Derma 25 and shoots up like Leonardo DiCaprio in the Basketball Diaries. Now, your explanation of that actually makes more sense than when I got in the American cut of this movie. Yeah, I mean, if they don't bother to establish that a gorilla escaped, then what the frigging fuck? How are you supposed to know <clears throat> It literally just felt like what what it felt like. Uh, what I took out of it was they talked earlier about how Derma Twenty Five turned people into monsters. Okay. So I just I was just thinking, okay, once he realized I'm too scared to do this stuff, he I, he just decided to inject himself with the Derma Twenty Five so he could become a monster to kill. And that's the other thing that I thought was weird right off the bat because if it turned them into just like you know rampaging monsters, and yet somehow he retains his intelligence. Yes, because uh, not only can he talk uh, fluently in three different languages, uh, but he's one of the few movie monsters who retains enough intelligence to perform emergency surgery. But anyway, so he shoots up, and thanks to a series of dissolves, the doctor gets head-to-toe Hiroshima-style radiation burns and a Conway Twitty wig. I was going to say, I thought he looked like a sleaze stack with a bad hair dye. That works, too. Uh, He grabs, I guess, a prostitute up the street. Then he goes back to the lab climbs into an atomic wishing well and thanks <laughs> thanks <laughs> sorry that was just funny thank you and thanks to the miracle of dry ice he is restored to his normal creepy self from the atom age he fixes uh, Jeanette's scars again uh, then it gets a little rapey fortunately unlike a lot of movie monsters he does take ooh for an answer and backs off. And Jeanette says, hey, no hard feelings. I'll meet you in the garden later. Uh, then she immediately sneaks off and calls the shipping line and tells them she has to get an airmail letter to Pierre immediately. Dashes one off and convinces the mute to mail it for her. But he just... <laughs> While you're by... Well, I, 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 I am out of cigarettes and you know I only have... I only smoke this kind. So um, go get me cigarettes. So my right to mail this letter. Yes. Just casually. It's oh so casual. Uh, not so casual that it doesn't make the mute suspicious. And so he takes the letter to the doctor uh, who reads it and burns it uh, and then tells the mute to turn off the phones. This scene wasn't done. So I assume this that wasn't in the English language version. Uh, no. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, the doctor monsters it up again and goes out to kill another girl while bicycle cops ride around warning pedestrians to beware of the gorilla. Now, Never saw any of that. Never here, saw okay. any of that. Here is what I think the, is the biggest chunk of uh, footage that was cut. There's a reporter, and I can't remember. He shows up at the hospital at the same time. Oh, is uh, he the guy? Is he the guy with the stupid hat? Yes. He shows up at the end of the American version. Okay. Did you see him in the beginning of the movie when Pierre goes to the hospital to find Jeanette? Mm, I don't remember. 
maybe, but I've already I've already blocked out a lot of the movie from my head from an hour and from two hours ago. So it's possible. The first time I honestly remember seeing him, though, is at the end of the movie at the movie theater, which we'll get to. Okay, he's in the movie a fair amount, but they I no, he got cut. He okay. got cut. Yeah, so he he knows Pierre. He meets him in the uh, in the hallway outside uh, what was Jeanette's room at the hospital and says, "Hey, did you hear that your fiance got her face peeled off by a passing car?" And then he goes away for a while. And then there's a long scene where the reporter comes back with a middle-aged lady and they go into the uh, police inspector's office for a comic relief sequence about how the gorilla hunt is going. Um, What? Oh, yeah. And the woman says, it's not a gorilla. It's a sedoc. And... There's a whole long scene where she she talks about when she was a little girl and a sedoc came to visit her in her room and somehow she escaped and she recognizes the signs and she's this sort of chattery vain caricature of of uh, middle aged ladyhood that uh, it's actually sort of cruel to watch because uh, they're it's they're obvious they obviously think she's funny and the reporter prints her story in the paper and the inspector reads it the next day and mutters. Uh, people believe anything. We'll go to the moon next. Didn't see any of that. Okay. Uh, but at this, but just as he's getting irritated about the press, he gets word of more victims. And the middle-aged woman gets a call from someone, says, hey, I saw your Sedoc theory in the paper. Uh, can I come over? And apparently whoever is talking to her is, is suave as the Continental because she gets all twittery and says, oh, well, let, get, yeah, let me put on some clothes. Give me five minutes. A lady's five minutes. <laughs> oh, it's awful. Wow. The, her suitor shows up at the door. And of course, it's 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 the monstered out doctor. And uh, he, what movie did you watch? Yeah. And he kills her with the world's quickest strangulation. Three seconds flat. It's like he murdered her and successfully pinned her in a WWE championship bout at the same time. Next, the the inspector, the reporter, and uh, some supporting characters whose names I didn't bother to learn because they're not in any of the English language scenes, go to the morgue and identify the woman's body. And everyone is shocked that Sadok might exist. Meanwhile, back at the doctor's mansion, Jeanette steals a key from his coat, uh, then steals a hat and a coat. To make a disguise. I remember this part. Right. Uh, We cut back to the nightclub where Pierre has gotten over his heartache and is macking on a couple of relief strippers. Oh, Uh, and, and I got to mention this part. I want to talk now. So this is actually a scene that I'm in that I actually saw. Okay. I thought it was hysterical. You know, he comes into the bar and the two chicks are there and the band comes in. Right. And they're like, yeah, play something just for me and I'll buy you all cigarettes. Okay. We got a paying customer. And then they start playing and maybe this is just the American putt, but cut but pierre starts clapping and his clapping does not match the song that they're playing at all uh very true that is okay so that happened with you too all right i i I laughed so hard at his little and i'm allowed to say this damn it at his gay little clapping (laughs) (laughs) yeah and what what made me laugh was because he's clapping and he's he's living it up and he and then all of a sudden instantly he gets sad and stares, yes, into, yes. stares into the distance, thinking of, uh, I guess, thinking of his lost girlfriend and all the dollar bills she used to bring in. I uh, think he just realized that his clapping made no sound yeah, whatsoever. Yeah, like, oh, God. He was some weird... <laughs> they're going to leave that in, aren't they? Everyone, <laughs> everyone's going to know I have no rhythm. Oh, crap. So Jeanette goes to Pierre's ship. Hey, or, lady, why don't you come on board? Yeah. No, I'll wait down here. Thank you. Yeah. 
Yeah. Line that I got. I don't know if you heard that one. Yeah, I, no, that. I, did, okay. I did get that, yeah. Again, as always in Italian films from this era, relations between the sexes are egalitarian and enlightened. But um, at least there are no butt sex jokes in this film. For which I am fiercely grateful. Yes, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not even going to pretend that that, I, that didn't bring a tear to my eye. So Pierre and Jeanette are reunited. They hug, they kiss. Then the doctor and the mute bash in Pierre's skull and knock him into the water and kidnap Jeanette and take her back to the lab. Pierre goes to the cops. Before I, a couple of real quick things. As 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 that scene is setting up, I loved the uh, his, his talking to the cops. He's like, but it was she in front of me. Yes. He had this, every time he was up, it was a rhyme, which I just thought just made me laugh. It was always, it was she. I swear, it was she. Anyway, go on. Every- oh, at the, the one point, the, the cop is like, here, okay, we're going to go to the, we're going to go to the place. Can I come too? Sure. In fact, no, wait, I'll explain this in the car. What? You can't, that's not legal. You can't say, oh, I've got a plot point, but I'll tell you off screen. I mean, it's like, just. Okay, can we cut to the car? No, because then you got to put a whole camera rig on the car. Yeah, no, they just they just cut to the house, and all of a sudden Pierre is playing Inspector Durand, I think his name was. Yep, yep. And this is where the doctor's whole scheme kind of starts to fall apart. Above and beyond, it's fundamentally stupid to begin with. Right. Even though they don't have any reason to, the cops suspect him. And Oh, even- I didn't get that at all. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. Oh, no, what I got from my cut is that the, the, the police inspector is going to ask our doctor about the two pictures because the doctor was nice to him and told him that his question about Hiroshima was intelligent, which is an exact line. It is, a, it is an exact line. He was very proud of that. You but, think I'm smart. And, I got I, I, I truly got no sense that the cops thought anything about the doctor and it was purely maybe this guy can convince you either way. We'll find out if this whole is if she's this disfigured, can she be this fixed? This guy can help us. There there were cutaways in the scene where they were speaking in Italian. So it sounds like this sequence was edited with a weed eater. And and to be fair, the American cut, the whole film was edited with a weed eater. I just want to put that out there right now. Right. This is one of the worst edited. Anyway, go on. Let's get this, let's get this plot done with. Plot. All right. <laughs> we're we're getting there, people. We're getting. We're there. almost. Yeah, we're done. We're 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 running that final turn. We're heading for home. So even though he's under suspicion by the police, the doctor goes out not monstered up, oddly enough, and tries to kill a, another woman, but her dog bites him. Oh, wait, dude, you're forgetting. Now, I can't believe you're skipping the shit that you're skipping. I, I was getting I was getting kind of fed up with the film. I wasn't taking oh, a lot understood. of notes at this But point. no, I do have to, I do got to, I do, do, do so have to mention the fact that Pierre winds up going back to the house to have a conversation with the doctor saying, yeah, I wasn't really a cop. I actually, I know the girl, but it was she in front of me. <laughs> That's true. That's true. And then he sees something on the grounds, like a, a discarded cigarette pack that was her brand or something. He'd see something that makes him suspicious. I can't remember what I wasn't taking. I that. honestly thought it was the tiki idol that Greg Brady found. Uh, that always arouses my suspicions, no matter what the context. So you may be right. So the police are suspicious and they dig up Monique and make the fangirling coroner perform an autopsy. And uh, they realize it was not heart paralysis, that she was murdered and her glands taken, just like the others. Why they wouldn't have noticed? Oh, maybe. No. Why didn't they notice her glands were missing in the uh, whatever? Because they didn't do the autopsy. Right. Uh, I guess he just sewed her back up so nicely. Exactly. Um, So the doctor goes to Jeanette to tell her 
he's really bad at killing people uh, when there's a dog involved, and he he can't get her any more glands, and she's going to return to her gruesome, scar-faced state forever. Except she's not. Right. The treatments, as it turns out, <laughs> have have finally taken effect, and the cure is permanent. Unfortunately, 30 seconds after he says right, he that just... she's disfigured forever, all of a sudden, wait, everything's perfect. Oh, and we have to, I have to put forth several times at this point, the doctor has said, just stay with me while I cure you. Then if you have if then if you want to go with Pierre instead of being with the man who, who who saved your life and brought your beauty back, then you deserve what you get. But at least stay with me until then. Right. And he's constantly, constantly saying, I gave you your beauty back. You will love me, damn it. But if you want to go with that dickhead, go ahead. Yeah, he's and he, of course, naturally, he's not going to. The one point she even says, I, I in, in this sequence, I, I believe, even she says, "Well, you gave me your promise. Well, this is my choice." Like, yeah, fuck that. Yeah, basically. So you know, I gave you your beauty. Only I can fully restore it. And then it turns out it's fully restored. Oops, there goes that leverage. So he just, I guess, his his adrenaline starts pumping because, like Henry Jekyll, he can no longer control his hideous metamorphosis. Okay, and, so there's, there was no explanation for that either. No, he just husband. suddenly starts monstering out. Uh, okay. And, uh... I feel better then. Yeah. Actually, no, I don't. No, no why, I don't. I feel would... worse, because I was hoping you would have an explanation for that transformation. Sorry, can't help. So, yeah, so he's he's just about to put the moves on her. He turns into Sedok, and then, it, then he he gives her back her gun, which he took from her when she first came to the house. So here's uh, here's the moment that would make Chekhov proud. The the gun returns to the plot, but uh, in a in a moment that would probably piss off Chekhov, she refuses to use it on herself or him. Yeah, exactly. It just seems like now would be really you know when you've got a man transforming into a monster and getting possessive and rapey with you, a gun seems like a really useful prop at this point. You know, to quote, you know, to 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 um to call back to what I said in the Halloween review, shotgun to the face, damn it. Yep, yep, exactly. Ah, we jumped ahead. We we skipped that whole section where they go to the movie theater because the cops are following Levin and he fools them by which giving... is the only point where I saw the reporter. So. Right, right. Uh, the uh, Levin gives his overcoat and hat to. Some guy who sits next to him in exchange for cigarettes. Again, I don't. Cigarettes are an amazingly powerful medium of exchange in this movie. It's like, who gives a fuck about the lira? Do you have any cigarettes? So you know what? Let's well, you just... see, Italian cigarettes are rolled in lira. Ah, that's how that works. I never, I never mastered making those particular joints. Um, <laughs> it takes a lot, but oh, is it a good smoke? <laughs> Smooth uh, <laughs> and expensive. Yeah. You know what? We'll skip that whole. There's a long section in the in the in the middle. Of, obviously, didn't make it in the American cut, and I I wasn't taking notes because it really didn't make any difference one way or the other. Uh, but the thing about the movie theater that I want to point out real fast, at least for me, is that's the only time that I saw the reporter, and mm-hmm. I didn't even know he was a porter. It's just this geeky looking guy with a funny hat that's like wa- watching in the background when the cops are talking in the movie theater and they find the blood. Mm-hmm. And then when they all run out, then the reporter guy runs out after him. And that's the last time I see him. Yeah, it, he has he has a fairly large uh, role. He has he has more lines than um, than uh, the police inspector's assistant. Uh, so it's always interesting to me when they can actually cut an entire character out of a movie. Except they didn't because he shows up in one right. scene and does nothing. And except puzzle the the poor viewer. 
who's watching the American cut. So anyway, let's wrap it up. Pierre shows up. He wrestles Dr. Monster uh, and gets his ass kicked. Thanks. Another one of these heroes. And uh, it's like, and okay, this fight, okay, and even even though, yeah, he's all monstered up and, and Pierre is, uh, is uh, you know, military, let me give you, if I may, um, some sound effects that I think will properly convey the ferocity of the fight, okay? If I may. Please do. Eh. Eh. <laughs> eh. Eh. <laughs> Yeah. Am I wrong, Scott? Am no, I wrong? No, you you nailed it. <laughs> uh, this was the limpiest fucking yeah. fight I have seen in a horror film ever. Uh, yeah, that's saying Seriously, something. Seriously, I mean, this was this is this was this was a this was groundbreaking for me for its wimpiness. Yeah, because uh, I mean the way, and I love the fact that Pierre. The only way that he can truly do any damage to Hair Doctor is to put both of his fists together to make one Uber fist. Oh yeah, he does that. That's <laughs> that that classic Captain Kirk move. Oh, that's right. It's the Kirk. I forgot that it was the Kirk. So uh, maybe that's where Shatner got it. Uh, maybe maybe he's a fan of adam age vampire i you know it's not like it's easy to think less of wayne shatner but uh i think i've i've achieved it all right um so (laughs) so our hero gets his ass kicked Uh, if he i guess he's our hero i guess he is by default Um, by default the cops show up and uh, uh corner the doctor in the greenhouse now, because our, our 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 Muppet monster takes him out to the greenhouse and tells and tells um, the mute that he has to hide her again like he did before. But then the cops show up and then and then the, and then the doctor's like, OK, guess I got to kill her. Right. So the abused deaf mute uh, stabs his master in the back in, in the traditional twist ending, which Bella Lugosi could have told you was coming from a mile away. Cut the cord. The monster dies and Dr. Levin's monster makeup dissolves as is also traditional. Yes. Uh, and now we now pan over to some flowers for no fucking reason. The end. Yeah. Pretty much. Yep. So there you go. Adam Age Vampire, 1960. Sedek, 1960. The heir of Satan. I have a feeling at this point, Satan is changing his will. <laughs> I mean, here's my thing. I mean, I could have been amused by the horrible dialogue, badly dubbed. I mean, there is always some entertainment to be mined from that. I mean, mm-hmm. the, that's the one thing MST3K proved. Oh, absolutely. That being said, at least in the American, at least in Adam Age Vampire, it is edited so poorly. And apparently since the whole characters were cut, I was so fucking confused as to the actual plot. I couldn't even laugh at the stuff just because I was constantly going, what? Trying to catch up. Wait, what? Yeah. Who the fuck? Why the fuck? What? Yeah, and even when you see all of it, it's it's really more boring than informative. So we were we were talking earlier, and we were both sort of hoping for kind of a, you know, an, an innocent nipple-filled romp like uh, Playgirls and the Vampire. And uh, we did not get that at all. It was that's serious. because the nipple provider wasn't didn't work on this film. No, no, she she was at she was at home. I guess he should have he should have it should have been bring your bring your wife's nipples to work day. <laughs> Would have made the film a little more entertaining. Uh, yeah, let's go to fascinating, irritating. Go ahead. 
Okay. Um, actually, for me, I, the fascinating thing really is the different cuts of the film. Mm-hmm. And just the fact that, I mean, the, 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 the power of editing is a truly wondrous and disastrous thing. And this proves it. Previously, we've only seen this kind of impact uh, when you like, compare uh, George Lucas's original cut of Star Wars with the one his wife did that saved the whole thing. Um, <laughs> that, that this is really illustrative of how foreign movies were bought and chopped and distributed in the U.S. in grindhouses and sold to TV. And, and why a lot of people just hate European movies from that era. Go, oh, they're garbage. They're trash. They're, they make no sense. Well, you know, you can't necessarily blame the filmmakers. Now, in this case, knowing more doesn't help anymore. It just hurts more. Oh, by the way, you never explained the, 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 why did he punch the why did he break the hole in the house? Oh, that turns out to be um, stupid. He takes like a big wicker basket for those gigantic Italian jugs of wine uh, and okay. piles, piles some of those up in front of the hole. And then when he he's uh, sneaking in and out in his monster form, he, he enters the castle or the manor or whatever. Through that hole, he punched in the wall. Um, even though he doesn't, he doesn't, he's not dragging a body. So it's like, why don't you just go through the door? You're the only one who lives there. And I, it's also made me wonder, since they, they go to the trouble of showing him laboriously crawling through this hole in the wall to get back into the lab and demonstrify, like, well, where's the girl? Are, are you telling me you extracted neck glands in the field with with, yes. the, with those fingernails? I That's got to be a challenge, but okay. Okay. Irritating. Can I use everything? <laughs> that's kind of a cheat. Come on, we're better than All that. All right, fine. All right, fine. Um. Ah. Irritating for me, actually, I think was knowing, knowing that there were knowing that there were things missing. I was just I was just getting irritated by the obvious cuts. Okay, I'm sitting there going, it was so obvious. It was so obvious. Okay, something's missing here. Something's missing here. Some, but this is like I don't understand. I was just irritated the whole damn film. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, I were... was confused and I was irritated. I wasn't having fun. You were not alone, my friend. Except, except for Pierre's, and I can say this very gay clapping. It, that that was the best joke in the entire film. It, that me. that was a lone bright spot. You're right. Just a look on his face, and then when he goes from clapping to being, you know, sad clown, it was just that's a great moment. But okay, okay, no, I will, I, I will be specific here. Actually, irritating for me was. Um, our heroine's whininess. Oh. I'm horrible. I must to kill myself. Oh, I belong with you. You belong with me. We belong together. Oh, I'm beautiful. Oh, I'm ugly. Fuck you. Yeah, she really has very few lines that are not overwrought. And they don't last long. There's like a couple of exchanges in that scene where she and the doctor are having their little cocktail party. And almost instantly... Uh, you know, she starts getting uh, the heartbreak of psoriasis and, and uh, there's a big panic. So there's like a couple lines where she goes, oh, you know, hey, the champagne cocktail's good. Thanks. And then it, it's back to that. I'm not even going to try to do that voice because you, you do her very well, by the way. Spot on. Spot on. You're fascinating, irritating. Uh, fascinating. Uh, Italians really do know how to depict jealousy. 
I have to say, I mean, the dubbing is pretty listless, but if you turn off the sound, and I got bored enough to do this at one point, and treat it as a silent film, Monique's slow simmering sexual rage is surprisingly, oh surprisingly convincing. She's just like, she's all like darting side eye and smoldering. And uh, she's. I do, I do remember going along those lines. There was one scene in the film where um, she walks in on on the doctor and and our heroine doing something, and it's the way her posture changed mm-hmm. immediately. Yeah. I was like, okay, all right, that's. Okay, I get you on that one. I do. Yeah, that's what I mean by the silent film effect. She's, yeah. If, as long as she's not talking, I kind of buy her performance. Um, also, even though it's an Italian film and everyone involved uh, behind and in front of the camera is Italian, it's set in France. Why? I have no clue. Perhaps Italians think the French are more likely to steal lady glands. You know the damn French frogs. You know the French and their beauty treatments. Um, Those damn frogs. Another fascinating thing is this was part of a whole subgenre, really, of of European horror that I think started around like like Eyes Without a Face and uh, Jess Franco's The Awful Dr. Orloff. Okay. Uh, it's all about, you know, beautiful women who are disfigured and then the crazy scientists or men in their lives who will who will kill to restore them to their beauty. So I, I actually and I don't know what these films are saying. The the, the women are too vain or that men are too focused on women's looks because they're usually the one killing and the women are usually not aware that, that, that their beauty treatments involve dead bodies. But it was a whole thing. It was There's a bunch of these movies. Uh, I, I had no clue when we started watching this, that this was part of that subgenre. Okay. There you go. Uh, irritating. There's no vampire in Adam Age Vampire. At least in the Playgirls and the Vampire, there are Playgirls and there's a vampire. And a vampire, that's true. And nipples. And nipples. Which is not promised in the title, but is a bonus. And then just every medical professional in this thing, from doctors to nurses to mad scientists, have the worst bedside matter. They're always telling Jeanette, you're grotesquely deformed and it's permanent. Don't you see? You'll always be a hideous freak. Anyway, would you like some jello? Stay away from the children's ward. They will run screaming from you. Here's your meatloaf. Exactly. They have enough problems. You're not exactly a make a wish. <laughs> Wait, I can make a wish. <laughs> that every every existing print of this movie would suddenly spontaneously combust? No, 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 no. That I had an ice pick and knew which part of the brain I could hammer that would eliminate the last three hours of my memory. Ah. Gotta live with it. Gotta tough it out. This was bad. This was bad. <laughs> this was not Spike Lee bad. Uh, no, a few things but are. It came pretty damn close. So thanks for that, Carl. We don't blame you. I mean, you although you probably know what we were getting into, and we did not. But still, we have asked for suggestions, and we take them cheerfully. And we will not hold it against you if it turns out to be this. But if you want to send us a good film, I don't think you'd hear many complaints. Uh, no, no, no. Maybe one. Because we always have to have something to bitch about because this is the Sun Gullion, a safe place to bitch. Safe place to bitch. Exactly. All right. Yeah, we're done. Happy Halloween, folks. Happy Halloween. You will freeze as you watch a warped scientist become transformed into a godless beast when his bloody scalpel probes the forbidden secrets of a woman's flesh. In Atom Age Vampire, you will flame of the stark ritual of a beautiful girl's last searing dance. As tragedy forever mars her loveliness. 
leaving her to face a world of terror. I give you my word that I will restore your face, restore all your beauty. You will cringe as the demented doctor experiments with a girl's trusting innocence. But to possess the living miracle wrought by his twisted genius, he must forever sacrifice his soul to the cunning gods of evil. I'll transplant directly from another human being. A mad creature born of the atomic age, now shackled to a world of rotting bodies and violent death. A sadist, a criminal, a depraved animal, more ferocious than Jekyll, more monstrous than Frankenstein, more bloody than Dracula. <laughs> Fire a volley through the window pane. You will gasp as lust and madness stalk the darkened, screaming night in Adam Age Vampire.